All right. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Nice to see everyone and welcome, especially to anyone who might be new visiting us tonight, both in person and also online. This is our first um, full session. Last week, we did our annual Refuges and Precepts, Twery and I did, and now we start this, this whole new year. And the topic this year is we're teaching from the list of threes, right? So these are a list that have things like the today, this month, or these next three months, the three um, refuges or the three gems, triple gems. There's things like the three characteristics. And Twery worked on this beautiful, I don't know if you can see it here in person online, but there's this beautiful um, bulletin board back here, three, threefold um, display thing that shows all the all the different refu- all the different teachings this year. So if you have a chance to check that out, or if you can come on in from in, online, you can explore it. So tonight, let's look at these three gems, or also the three refuges of the Buddha, of the Dharma, and the Sangha. So this is really really Buddhist <laughs> Buddhist um, heavy because we, this is really what we come into as, as Buddhist practitioners. That being said, it's not about making you Buddhist. It's just using it as a way of inspiring your practice, of learning how to, to frame your practice. You know, the sense of being Buddhist or not Buddhist is really completely up to you. I myself you know, took years before I kind of really settled into that, that label. Now, the idea of refuge is, I think it's helpful to pause there for a moment. But what do we mean by refuge? The sense of sheltering, the sense of protection, the sense of safety from what might be troubling us, the dangers of life, the, the suffering of life. There's some place where we can find relief and escape from that, that suffering. So in this way, these refuges can be a, a place we go to that we practice. They can be a place of inspiration, a place that we use to bring forth faith and understanding. It can be something that we use, okay, I want to really see this in my own life, my own, the nitty gritty of how my life works through the lens of meditation. How does it, how does my, my mind show up? How does my reactivity show up in this situation, in this situation? So carrying this sense of the refuges, a sense of refuge as we go into these, each of these three, um, gems of the Buddha, of the Dharma, and the Sangha. So the Buddha, we can hold the Buddha in many different ways. You know, as practitioners, some people hold it, hold him as a, um, almost a supernatural being, you know, like a, almost like a god, a deity. Others hold him maybe more in a mythological way. I tend to hold him mostly as a, as a very gifted person. A person who had a deep sense of commitment to practice, a deep sense of, of direction, of learning to see how, how his mind works, how he creates suffering, how he releases that suffering, and the tenacity to keep practicing till he saw such a, a deep release, a deep liberation that it transformed his life in a very complete way. And that we're very lucky that he was able to continue to teach for some 80 years after, or 40 years, I'm sorry, after he, he became awakened. You know, 40 years of, of deepening, of refining, reinforcing his teaching. I think that's one of the reasons that Buddhism has such a strong 
foundation because we were so, so lucky to have him and his, his life, his circumstances, he was able to, to live and continue to teach. Now, it's interesting we think of the idea of refuge because that's really what started the Buddha off on his, his path to awakening is to try to find some place of refuge in his life. And when you look at the Buddha, the pre-Buddha, the person who became the Buddha, his life, you, didn't think, you may not think there's a lot of suffering, a lot of difficulty there. One sutta describes, he is describing his, his existence that I was delicate, most delicate, supremely delicate. A white sunshade was held over me day and night so that no cold or heat or dust or grit might inconvenience me. Right, so you can get a sense of just how, you know, he was very had great, great wealth, great um, resources to really shelter him from the normal human discomforts. Some um, stories of the Buddha talk about how they would hide anyone who was sick or who was ill or aged from his sight. Even plants, they would take the plants which are are decaying, so just everything was fresh and new and young and healthy. So you get this sense, like, well, what is the rub? What's the rub that started his practice? Seems like that's the refuge that we want to get to, right? To have everything perfect, everything at ease in our lives. This is where those heavenly messengers come in. That the Buddha, the the story goes that he was out riding with his his charioteer and saw someone who was was sick, and he was very surprised because he had never seen anyone who was sick before because his his family had really sheltered him from that, that vision. He's like, what's wrong with this person? Why are they so ill? Why are they so feverish? And the charioteer said very matter-of-factly, that just how it, that's what happens. It happens to all of us. And the Buddha was surprised at this. Does will this happen to me also? Yes, it will. So this is a big wake-up, a big shock. And then aging. The same thing, someone who is aged, who is much older, was not able to move as, as smoothly, had ailments, aches and pains, loss of function. Well, this too happened to me. Seeing someone who, um, who had died, who had passed away. Well, this too happened to me. And each of these messengers brought a new sense of sobering around him. Asuta. Around this, the Buddha says that whilst I had such power and good fortune, and yet I thought when an untaught, ordinary person who is subject to aging, not safe from aging, sees another who is aged, they are shocked, humiliated, disgusted, for they forget that they themselves are no exception. But I too am subject to aging, and so cannot, it cannot benefit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted in seeing another who is aged. When considering this, the vanity of youth entirely left me. And so on with illness and with death. So this is the sheltering that the Buddha realized that what I thought was so sheltered and and rarefied and protected actually wasn't so. It was very shocking, very um, disconcerting. I think we all have experienced that in our lives. Even those of us who might be young and have fairly good conditions, when that first big wave of suffering hits us, 
You know, and of course, as we get older, it becomes harder and harder to argue against that as our bodies can totally shouting out the fact that we're getting older, that we're changing. We look around us, we see our loved ones are also changing. We see illnesses come and go. We just still, COVID is still, still happening, is still killing people, still make people sick. And as a whole world, we, we grip this, this reality of illness. So then we start to have this question, well, if things are things in my body, my mind, my health, all those things, even my possessions are in flux or always changing, where can I find that refuge? Where is that refuge? This is the question that the Buddha contemplated and began his path around. He realized that, okay, here I am looking for something of some lasting happiness some lasting sense of, of refuge in things which are always in flux, always changing. Everything I pick, it's going to change. If it doesn't change, I'm going to change. I'm going to lose my interest. I'm going to lose my function. I'm going to lose my, my physical capacity, whatever it might be. So everything was changing. Me, I'm changing. Everything I'm seeking, happiness is also changing. So what, what's the solution? This is what got him to leave his, his palace, to renounce, to let go and begin a six-year journey to find what he called the unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme, surges of bondage, of nibbana. And when you hear those words, you can sometimes get this impression that, okay, he's looking for a way to escape death, to escape illness, to escape aging. Okay, so it's not about the physical body. It's not about this individual, because this individual will age. It will become ill. It will die. This is the reality that we have. But he was looking for some quality of, some place to abide, some place to abide in his heart and his mind that's outside of that change. That's the deathless. That's what was out beyond change, beyond condition. So the Buddha began his quest, and the first people he ran into taught these deep types of meditation. Meditations, which we could call jhana states, concentration states, these really deep states where everything, all your sense gates kind of close down to just this one object that you're focusing on. And these states can be very blissful, can have a great sense of pleasure with them. And the Buddha mastered it to such a level that those teachers said, you need, you should teach alongside of me. You know as much as I do, if not more. But the Buddha reflected that, okay, these states lead to this, these blisses, these, these deep pleasures. But it does not lead to what he called dispassion, to fading of lust, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment. Okay, so he saw that even though they were very pleasurable, it was still subject to change. It would still end at some point. Okay, so this is a, a very important point here in his life because he could have easily have switched into just becoming a, a, a concentration master, 
But that wasn't enough for him. That wasn't where he was seeking. And luckily, he continued to look deeper and deeper. Then he went a different direction. Okay, okay, pleasure isn't it. I'm going to go toward pain, toward self-morphication. So he starved himself. He sat still. He, one sutta talks about he would only eat what would fall on his, his lap while he was eating, like sitting during the day. So like a leaf or something else. So it becomes so, so, um, you know, starvation. You could see his ribs. You could touch his, his belly, touch his backbone, just really punishing his body. This is partly, this was the style of practice in some areas in what became India back then. Some, some schools really practice that. Let's, let's really purify the body, purify the mind through punishing the body, denying the body. At one point, he realized, okay, I'm about to die. And then he realized, he reflected on this, this time that he was, had this kind of mid-level or this kind of low level of concentration. There's a sense of peace and ease. And yet there's also this availability to the world. It's this rose apple tree sutta. And this is when he was just a little kid watching his father plow in a ceremonious way, plowing the field. They said, well, what if that's not so bad to have that sense of ease, that sense of balance? So he found this middle path. So then he became, practiced that, you know, soon after that, sat down to practice until he awoke. And then, of course, after that point, then have that deep understanding, that deep seeing through delusion, that falling away of all his, his ignorance and delusion, he awoke. The Buddha literally means the awakened one. So this is the refuge of the Buddha, that his path, it so often mirrors our own path of how we relate to suffering, how we look for suffering, the ease of that in different ways that don't ultimately pan out. It may pan out for short terms, but there's something, something that's still not quite at ease. And so it often brings us to practice, just like it brought the Buddha to practice so many 2,600 years ago. So this inspires us. This brings a sense of, of hope, of a sense of faith in the practice. As the Buddha said, as he started, he chose to teach, he said, I wouldn't teach you if, he did, if it wasn't possible for you to do it. If it wasn't possible, I would not have offered that. Would not have offered that. So let's move into this next refuge, the refuge of the Dharma. Okay, the Dharma is what we could say in the way that the Buddha, what the Buddha taught for those 40 years. We can also hold it as all the, the ways that teachers since the Buddha have developed the, the Dharma, have maybe shaped it to their cultures, had added things to it still with this honoring, this foundation of, of the Buddhist teachings. Now, the Buddha left about 3,000 suttas. So these are these discourses. So some of them are kind of duplicates or just re, slightly reframing of the other ones. And it's important to realize that the Buddha, after he passed away, his his teachings weren't written down 
for 300 years. Because for 300 years, what all the monks, it was monks at that time who I think held this, but of course there was many nuns who were practicing at the time of the Buddha also. They, they both had this, you know, very deep practitioners on both sides of things. But unfortunately, the as it tends to be throughout history, the, the men have often that seat of the power. And so they would decide, okay, we're going to, which ones, which of the teachings do we want to remember? Do we want to keep alive? You know, so they would go through and say, okay, so-and-so, you, re- you remember this teaching. I want you to remember it. You chant it again and again, and you pass it on to other people. And then so-and-so, you work on that one. And so that way there's this body of suttas. That's why often if you read the suttas, there's a lot of repetition. If you can imagine chanting it, it makes sense how you would just say those words again and again, and there'd be a new verse that would come up that would add that that highlighted teaching. And then about 300 years later, we went down to um, what became Sri Lanka, and a prince there wanted to write it down. And luckily he did write down the suttas. And then from there, we take those translations and some of those translations went over to, to China. And, and we have these kind of early ways of, of holding, of, of really retaining the Buddhist teachings. And then once Buddhism went to different countries, different um, teachings were added to it. So it just became a very rich, very diverse teachings. But we can take all of that. And the Buddha often would say, or, or said at least in one sutta, that I only teach one thing, okay, one thing only. I teach suffering and the end of suffering, right? So that's, if you hold your practice that way, how is my practice informing how dukkha arises, how suffering arises? How's my practice understanding that? How's my practice understanding the cessation of suffering, the release of suffering, the liberation of that? Now, suffering, I'm using that translation, a common translation for the word dukkha. Now, dukkha is a much more nuanced word. That's something that's actually pleasurable is also dukkha because it's impermanent, that eventually it falls away. Dukkha is that sense of things not quite fitting right, that sense of insatisfactoriness or insubstantiality, the nature of life. So one way to, the core way to kind of look at being um, one of the Buddhist teachings is the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths that there is dukkha, there's an origination of dukkha, there's a cessation of that dukkha, and there's a path to the end of that dukkha. Now dukkha, again, is this, this, in some ways we can say it's the optional suffering that we have as human beings. Right? So the Buddha, if he stubbed his toe, he would feel pain, just like we do. But because the Buddha practiced, or anyone who practices, the pain is limited to just that sensation of that stuff, of the actual impact of that. Well, if we're not practiced, then we, you know, we yell and scream, and who left that brick there? We make, you know, there's this, we amplify the pain, we make it much bigger than it actually is. Right? So there's a way we can take that reactivity and make pain more prominent. That's the dukkha that the, the Buddha looked at 
and released. There's also the dukkha that comes from change, that things are always in flux, always arising and passing away, and how we we experience suffering from that. Instead of relaxing in our hearts, this is the nature of things, that things come, things go. And probably the most significant aspect of dukkha is this dukkha that's that comes from us having this this unquestioned belief in an isolated sense of self, the sense of me, who's isolated, that's separate, that's distant from all things. Right? So the Buddhists realize that this is actually a core misseeing. We're not seeing things clearly. That that sense of me is actually arising and it's passing away. It just arises and passes away so many times, we tend to connect in, it in a moment, in a minute almost, we connect the dots and saying, okay, that self is continuous. It's unchanging. Right? And yet, it is changing. And the Buddha discovered what it arises out of and falls back into. It's much more actually what we are as human beings. So this is, this is actually, it's a tricky thing because the sense of self, it's just this really core delusion that we always pick up, that we always orient from until we see through that. That sense of me, you know, we realize that we suffer when we, those roles in our lives that we've identified around change. You know, I spoke about when my daughter went off to college and that, that ending of that way of being a parent to her is not the same anymore. You know, she's no longer dependent upon me in the way that she used to be. So there's a suffering in that. You know, there's the joy that when she was first born and that coming into that role as a parent, there's also the sadness or the, the pain of losing that, that autonomy, that freedom that everything really needs to focus on how to care for this child. Those of us who retire, you know, how do we hold that translation, that transition into a non-working life? If we've built our whole life around being a certain person who is doing this job. And of course, the ending of relationships, the ending of whether it's relationships through divorce or separation, there's the pain of that. There's the pain of loved ones passing away. So all of this is also revolving around that sense of self, a sense of me. This is really the second noble truth. So if you really want to understand the core Buddhist teaching, understand the four noble truths, and also understand in particular that second noble truth, the ways the Buddha described this mechanism of creating the sense of me, through things like the 12 links of dependent origination, the five aggregates, all these different ways we take take shape, take form. So the Dharma as a refuge, the Dharma as a refuge. And how does that show up in our lives? How does it show up as a, an alive refuge? So we start, to, I remember early on in my first few days of practice, literally the first few days of practice, the teacher talked about um, how experience 
And our resistance to that experience creates that sense of suffering. He was reframing uh, the Buddhist teachings in a more mathematical way. Experience times suffering, or experience times resistance equals suffering, right? So zero resistance, zero suffering. A lot of resistance, a lot of suffering. So I was going through, uh, speaking of endings of things, an ending of a, a committed relationship and feeling all the, the pain around that, the lack of the future, how I thought it would be, and then the, the pain of, of self-inadequacy and all those fears, all those things. And when I heard this teaching, I was like, well, that's he's saying that something about my experience right now is optional. The suffering of that experience is optional because of my resistance to it. And that just, that hooked me right into the Dharma. And that's what the Dharma asks us, is to be hooked by it, to really come into our own, wherever it lines for you. There's so many teachings, there's so many ways to explore this simple, what is dukkha and what's the release of that dukkha. But what connects you in your life, that's what matters. What brings your practice alive? What is that that fire? It's like you bring this fire of the Dharma. And then that becomes something that really becomes a refuge. At some point, it can actually become the struggles in your life become a place of um, delight because you realize, wow, I'm really struggling right now. Isn't that interesting? How am I seeing this in a way that's not aligned with the Dharma? How am I seeing in a way that's creating suffering? How am I relating to it? And this asks us to set aside our normal way of, okay, if I fix this situation, this person, this part of me, then I won't suffer. It's certainly relative, relatively true. But the Buddha is going beyond those conditions. What's, where is my happiness outside of conditions, outside of circumstances? What is that happiness? Where's the happiness, the sense of ease, regardless of whether I'm young or old, healthy or sick? Many years ahead of myself or on my deathbed, where is that happiness? Where is that lie? Where's that lie in the midst of being caught in an argument, being stuck in traffic, being sitting on a beautiful mountain lake? You know, what is the common denominator? That's what the Buddha pointed to. And that's what our, our really our, our role as practitioners is to discover that for ourselves. You see, where is that lie to make that alive for us? Our only job as teachers is to help maybe guide you if you're going in a way that's a little bit of a blind alley to really encourage you when you're really seeing deeply to help fan that flame that's inside of you. This is the refuge of the Dharma, right? What the Buddha taught, what the Buddha discovered, how do we actually make that alive for ourselves? And now the, the final refuge of Sangha, of Sangha, of community. And sometimes uh, we can hold this, this in different ways. I think one of the, classic ways, but perhaps a little harder to get connect with is just that all the, the Sangha represents all those who have become awakened. 
from the Buddha on. That refuge that, wow, there's all these people who have practiced and through their practice have liberated their hearts. And there's a, a certain sense of inspiration, a sense of faith in that, of potential. There's also the sense of all the people who practiced. I mean, just think for a second here. Here we are sitting right now in 2023, practicing together, practicing these words of the Buddha that were spoken and taught 2,600 years ago. And how long that, how many people practiced it and understood it and passed it on from generation to generation, from student to teacher, teacher to student, all the way through in an unbroken way. And that's also the Sangha, that when you sit to practice, you're not only sitting here, you all by yourself in your room, you're sitting with the community, everyone who's practicing at Sims or whatever organization you're part of. You know, if any of you use Insight Timer, it's, it's kind of funny. You can look and see, you know, 300,000 people have just practiced with you right now. It's like, that's kind of cool that realizing as you're practicing, Anywhere, anytime, there's other people practicing right alongside of you. Now, the power of that, how that becomes a refuge, you can often see it really clearly on retreats. You come on a retreat, you can sit next to someone for a a two-day, three-day, week-long, month-long retreat, and you may not say a single word to this person, but you start to rely on their their steadiness. It's like, wow, you know, I don't even know their name, but they're practicing. I can practice. It's like I start to feel caught by hindrance, and you realize, well, this person's still sitting still. I've certainly you know, had many of those those moments with people on retreat, just really appreciating their diligence of practice. I've had people say the same thing to me that, well, you you really kept me steady. And I'm like, well, you didn't know what was going on in my mind. <laughs> But still, there's that, that art of practicing, that willingness to practice. I remember when I first started to come to Sims, um, because of my work schedule, I would sometimes come right after, just after it started, maybe a minute or two late. And it was, all, it was always, you know, other than the awkwardness of trying to negotiate that, it felt like I was walking into this really special, the, the air itself felt different. There's a way that everyone practicing, there's a stillness that was there. And sometimes you're in the middle of the stillness, you may not notice it the same way as you come out from your normal life. Like, wow, this room is different because everyone's practicing. Right? That's part of the, that's part of Sangha. They're the ways we support ourselves in ways which are unseen and unknown. I heard about a study that said if a certain number of people meditate in the city, the crime rate actually goes down. It actually somehow it switches out through, moves out through the landscape. And then, of course, there's the interactions with people when you actually talk about your practice. Such a precious thing to be able to, to talk about. I mean, how many of us have try to explain meditation to a disinterested relative. <laughs> They're like, oh, well, that sounds nice. You're going to retreat, going to relax all the time. Or they don't quite understand what it's like to practice, what that means to practice. It's such a precious 
gift to be able to share that with another person. And that's what we do for each other here at Sims, at Sanghas across the world, is that we share this common interest in understanding the nature of our suffering, to understand the release of that suffering. There are times that I've been in small groups and, and shared my practice and being witnessed in that and heard in that and hearing other people share their practice. It just brings a level of, of energy of, of encouragement that is, is really hard to duplicate in other ways. So I think so many people long for Sangha. And we're blessed COVID gave us this gift of an online as well as an in-person Sangha. I know a number of you online here are not local. You're not in the Seattle area. And yet you feel a deep part of being part of this community. And that's, that's really a gift. You know, so reflecting on that, feeling that sense of, of community, of connection. When people ask questions, has anyone ever asked a question of a teacher and that question completely speaks to your experience? It's like, oh, that, that really helps me understand my practice. All the power of Sangha, of connection. So these three gems, these three precious gems of the the Buddha, of the Dharma, of the Sangha, they really become this this true refuge for ourselves, a way of of understanding, you know, how does the practice show up right here in this mind, in the laboratory of this mind, in this heart? How does it support us? And the homework for this week, to reflect Next time that you feel difficulty in your life, where do you naturally go for refuge? And just this is part of the the important piece is understanding dukkha, understanding our natural patterns. We kind of jump over, okay, I'm supposed to go to the refuge right away without seeing where our habit pattern is. It's not as, as helpful. But just notice, okay, I'm struggling. I want to check out. I want to watch something. I want to eat something, I want to do this or that. You know, not to judge it, but just to notice it. Just to notice where we go. And practice pausing with that and taking these refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha. Just saying those simple words. You can say them three times as we we did on on um, last Monday. Or just saying them once and just let that See if that shifts something with you. Reflecting of each of these, these refuges, reflecting on the life of the Buddha and his, his struggles, what he overcame, what he realized. Reflecting on the teachings, some aspect that really brings that flame alive. Reflecting on having spiritual friends, on Sangha. Reflect and see how each of those those refuges at different times in our lives and different times in our day, some of them really come forth in different circumstances. So practicing in this way with, with the refuges this week. And the next week we'll have a chance to explore and see, see what you, you have realized. All right, let's just sit quietly for a couple of moments, letting those words settle.
as we sit together, this hybrid community of those online, those in person. Sensing into the community, all the people practicing here right now are supporting you. And equally so how you're supporting them. Just by practicing. Just by being with this moment's experience to the best of your ability. As much awareness, as much compassion as is possible in this moment. Sensing into the richness of the Dharma. Of all the teachings which have resonated at different times in your life. To help you understand your place in the world in a different way. In sensing into the Buddha, this man in robes and rags, practicing in a way that's never been practiced before, seeing something that's not been seen. And his willingness to teach, to share, to instruct, to help others to also see what he has seen, to wake up. Taking refuge in the Buddha in the Dharma, in the Sangha. All right, so we have a chance for any questions or sharing comments you might have, both online and in person. If you're online, probably the easiest is if you raise your virtual hand that highlights you so I can see you and call on you. And those in person, you can raise your hand and we can have you come over so we can have the online people see you.
All right, Beth, come on over. All right, go ahead. Um, I have a question about um, the difference between taking refuge and being attached to, an attachment to. I'm, I have a question about taking refuge versus being too attached, like drawing too much attachment. Um, for context, I had an interesting discussion with my mother um, and she was trying to understand a little bit more about practice and uh, from she's coming from a Catholic background. So she was, she was really trying to align things with a Catholic model. Um, and I felt myself really tensing up when she was aligning the Buddha with a deity and I was getting really aggravated with mm. it. And I found myself being really attached to that, like, my my concept and my um where where i was aligning my understanding and so i'm just also noticing that that like that's probably not ideal right that sort of strong like clinching around my idea of buddha um and at the same time like reaching to that for refuge so i wonder if you Mm. have anything to say about that around the buddha in particular there's a refuge or yeah, all of yeah, them. Yeah. All right, and I'll switch back so you can see me talking and go back if you need to. Yeah, so it's it's a great question. I think the biggest you know difference is how it feels, right? So we feel that sense of attachment, you can feel how you know contracted we get, and our mind gets contracted and our it's really kind of brittle and, and tense, and we're not very responsive, we're kind of under siege, if you will. Versus times we're not attached. It's like, you know, someone could say, you know, whatever they want. And you're like, okay, well, that's, that's your opinion, but there's no, you can feel how it just kind of flows through. So it is, yeah, it is true. It's not, um, it's something to investigate to see, okay, what, what, what about that makes me get that, that tense, that opinionation that I want to be right. I want to be understood. And it's, you know, it's diff- difficult because, you know, you're dealing with your mom. So it's not like a, <laughs> you know, a, a neutral interaction. There's lots of charge, historical charge. You know, you, that's a person you've known more than longer than anyone in your life. Right. So there's all that. There's all the conditioning. You know, were you raised Catholic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's all that going on, too. And so it's like, how do you how do you navigate that? And, you know, there's also where she's coming from. Because sometimes there's a sense of wanting you to adopt or readopt their belief, and then what does that feel like? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it, and then that's that's where we get. That's why so many so many wars have been fought over over religion is because we get into those places there. So what I would say, just to practice it, maybe not so much with her, but by yourself, just kind of have that you know drop that conversation into the sitting. So practice a little bit, get, you know, get your, your steadiness there and just say, okay, there's my mom saying this, you know, whatever she said about the Buddha that made you, you know, tense up or fight or whatever it might be. And don't go down the path of arguing in your mind with her, which our normal path is, but just say, okay, what does that really feel like? 
what does it feel like in my heart, in my mind, in my body? And just kind of with curiosity, with interest. Well, what is that like to have that, that view be confronted, that view be discounted? And by doing that, you start to see something that you're not seeing around it. They'd be like, oh, yeah, it's there's often when I do this, there's like this, maybe I'm mad about something, angry at someone for something they've done. And when I practice without trying to, again, act from the anger, trying to discount the anger, but actually really feel what is the anger like right now in this body is often at some point might be a few moments. It might be a few weeks. <laughs> there's this dropping in. It's like, oh, there, there's this deeper current, this deeper emotion, this deeper belief. And then there's this, then there's a tenderness, there's a softness. And then you understand more clearly what true refuge is. So you're almost in some ways using the refuge of the Buddha as a way to really deepen into it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, even though it's not a natural refuge, it's like, okay, how can I really use that rub um, as a way to, to deepen my own experience around it? Yeah, that's really helpful. I, and there's, there's sort of like the counter discussion that I have with my daughter, who's seven, who's like pretty well convinced that Buddha is female. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's awesome. Yeah. And I like, I don't, I, I like, I'm not attached to my concept when I have this discussion with her. It's just, it feels much less contracted and relaxed and like, that's right. It's really, so that's very helpful to hear that. Like there's something, there's, there's something to sit with something else that's happening. That's right. Yeah. And that's a great way to, to play with that. And you notice how with your daughter, you know, you know, saying, okay, Buddha is female. Mm-hmm. And okay, that's, you can open to that. You can feel that. So, you know, this concept of gender, you know, it's probably a lot less constricted than most of us hold it as. Mm-hmm. We can relax into that. And certainly the Buddha, there's, there's historical Buddhas, which were female. The Kuan Yin mm-hmm. is that manifestation of that. And I think that's, and you just, you learn what is that like to be in that way? And so that's, that's what I was trying to point on is, is understanding these two sides of things. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm trying to be the camera person <laughs> <laughs> and I get distracted. Um, of understanding suffering and understand the release of that suffering. So there your mother helps you understand suffering. Your daughter helps you understand the release of suffering. For the time being. <laughs> For the time being. <laughs> Next week we'll have a different question. Maybe it'll be reversed. <laughs> Thank you, Beth. All right, Deb. Hi, Tim. Hi, Deb. <laughs> so this is also a comment uh, and a question, I guess, about the Buddha. Um, it is said, and I have said, um, uh, the Buddha is in all of us. I am the Buddha. You are the Buddha. Uh, we recognize the Buddha in one another. So now we're talking not about only the historical Buddha, Prince Siddhartha, and who he became, this wise teacher, human, we think for the most part, you know. But what does it mean then when we say, I recognize the Buddha in you. I recognize the Buddha in me. That's kind of a... Um, are we saying we recognize some kind of sacredness in one another? That's sort of how I take it. 
but it's almost like that duality, you know, of the the profane and the sacred that each of us embraces, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mean, that it's a matter of interpretation, but I think it's very interesting. And I've heard it said, I don't know if it's true, that when someone says namaste in as a greeting, maybe in India, that they are referring to the sacredness in one another. I could have that wrong. Maybe that's just a, you know, a glamorous kind of a romantic thing. But uh, can you speak to the Buddha in me, the Buddha in you, the Buddha in each of us? Sure. I can try to. I think um, just as a to preference that comment, um, was listening to, to Beth's question, like with Catholicism versus Buddhism and how they can kind of butt heads about each other. The different branches of Buddhism can also butt heads against each other, right? They can be very opinionated. So that phrase that, you know, I see, you know, the, the, the Buddha nature, the sense of Buddha in you, Buddha in me, it's probably strictly not a Theravatan sense. It's more of a, a later, a um, kind of a Mariana sense, how it kind of changed. And I think those, you know, those ways of adapting the teachings have, have a skillfulness to it. They have a way of really making them alive. And so I don't, I don't, I don't, for myself, I'm not very dogmatic. It's like, I'm trying to be very practical. What, what works, if it resonates, that's good. That's what matters. Like with one type of Zen practice, Soto Zen, it's often your, the instructions are just, you know, sit and discover the, the nature that you're our Buddha that see the Buddha nature. And that's all you do It's like the assumption is that you're already the Buddha. You just have forgotten it. You have to rediscover that. And that's a very different attitude than I've got to get this in place. Like remember the ox hurting pictures where we're trying to struggle through all this thing. I'm so inadequate. I've got to get to some place where I'm ad- adequate. It's more like I'm already there. I just forgotten. It. It's a very different way of, of holding it. It also points to this this fundamental uh, Dharma teaching, and you know, not just a, a philosophy, but really a direct seeing that when that sense of separation falls away, we do realize that we are. There's no difference between us and another person. The differences are all just the trappings, all the conditioning, but the essence is the same. And calling that Buddha, Buddha nature, I think that's a good way to do that. And like the namaste, you know, the bowing to the light in me bows to the light in you is one way I've heard that described. And that's, that's a lovely way to, to hold that. You know, when you see another person, you realize, wow, this, there's a, there's a, a sacredness. There's something you can say divine. If you like those words, you can say that something of the nature of Buddha within them. And that's also within me. And you start that it's a way of really kind of inclining ourselves toward that. We start to act and relate to ourselves and others differently from that. So I think it's a, a really powerful way to practice. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank you, Deb. All right. Anyone else online or in person like to ask or share anything? Online people are quiet. There you go, Kathy. Go ahead. 
Thank you, Tim. Uh, I enjoyed the talk very much and uh, the comments as well. And um, what you were saying in return to, into, to Deb's uh, good, good, interesting point was that um, something I don't very often think about, but it's been helpful to me a few times in life, which is to be thinking or maybe even experiencing someone uh, I find very, I find really difficult or I don't like, you know, and and try, I try on in my mind once in a while when I have the ability, which is not very often, to think that they have something sacred in them too. Can this be? Can this? Is this how it is? You're asking me if that's how it is. Yes. <laughs> I'm. I'm thinking. Is this? Is this a plausible area of uh, contemplation or study? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So, in working with the difficult people in our lives, the ones that trigger us, that you know get us riled up, that hurt us. I mean, there's all whole range of that. So I think it can be a very fruitful way to practice. But, you know, how to practice, it's interesting because we don't want to discount our, our hurt. We don't want to, you know, ignore that. We don't want to ignore any boundaries or ways we have to protect ourselves. And we also don't want to overemphasize that more than is needed, too. Because we can, we can kind of say, okay, I'm going to protect myself by never talking to this person again and get kind of locked in, and hardened around that. And the guide of the body is, is so helpful because you can notice when you're in that place, right? Okay, I'm really making this person the other. There's a sense of, of contraction. Of, you know, they walk into the room and you just get tense, all right? So right there, there's the point of practice. So how to practice with it, you know, how to actually find your way through that. You know, unfortunately, I can't give you like this, the three steps to complete love and acceptance of anybody in the world. It's going to be a process. You know, sometimes it's, it's, it's more of the sense of, of really, really acknowledging for yourself your own suffering, your own pain around it, having compassion for that. Sometimes it's really reflecting on, the, on them. It's like, wow, you know, for them to say that or do that, they also have to be having a lot of suffering. There's got to be a lot of, a lot of pain. It's, isn't this one of the, is it a Christian um, teachings to, to walk, as you're walking in someone else's shoes, you know, what would that be like if I walked in their own experience? Would I act any differently? You know, to reflect on, you know, their, their difficulties to the point where there's a quality of, of some compassion. Again, we still have discernment. We still have, you know, boundaries and all those things. And then sometimes there can be that, okay, let's see what's divine about them, the divineness or that sense that's the Buddha nature of that person. Where can I find that? So I'm just, I kind of, can I laid out kind of the big areas that, each of those you can kind of play with. Okay, where can I make some headway? Where can I open to a little bit? Where can I get some traction? Right. So sometimes it might be more taking care of your own needs, acknowledging your own pain. Sometimes it might be having empathy for their pain. 
compassion for their pain. Sometimes it might be, you know, maybe admitting that you're wrong, you know, noticing where your opinions get so strong. Maybe that's where the suffering is. And, it, but ultimately I think that moving toward that, seeing the divine and someone and seeing that, um, the Buddha nature and probably <laughs> upsetting some people by using divine and Buddha nature in the same phrase, but I kind of just see it as, as the same expression of the essence. Yeah. Does that help Kathy? It's great. Thank you very much, Tim. You're welcome. All right. Anyone else in person online? Yes. Come on up. Oh, let me switch this so they can see you. Yeah, if you could grab that just so they can hear you online. You're not amplified in the room, but they can hear you online better. So I actually want to take that a step further. Okay. Not just people who, you know, I disagree with or bother me, but people who do hesitate to use the word bad or immoral Mm because that in itself is very judgmental, but to to see those people and condemn the things that they do, but also have compassion and boundaries. Um, Can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. So do this camera, camera switch. So the question around, you know, people who, who do bad things or cause a lot of harm in the world, how do you, how do you go into into those kind of arenas mm-hmm. while still holding space for yourself? Yes, space. And so it's it's kind of it's in, if it's if you're personally kind of affected, it's a little harder, I think, than if you're kind of hearing from afar, perhaps, or maybe it's not harder. I remember, um, you know, Sandy Hook when that when I heard that that horrific school shooting, you know, I was I was just you know just in tears. But I also felt a lot of tears for the shooter and how, you know, just how, what kind of pain would cause someone to do that. So sometimes that can really, you know, reflecting on that when you hear someone who's done something, instead of just condemning the person completely, it's like reflecting that they are in a lot of pain to act from that way. And so that starts to, it's that compassion. Mm -hmm. And the compassion has that the clarity that it doesn't, we don't lose boundaries. You don't lose discernment. We don't use like that behavior is absolutely not acceptable. And yet you can still see the pain that caused that behavior. Mm-hmm. So it's this interesting you know, dynamic. Mm-hmm. And so when you have someone that's closer to you, that's causing harm to you, that you actually have to, you know, how do you to navigate that? Sometimes it's, we have to look at our own natural tendency because sometimes like our boundaries are like so indented or they're so non-existent. We have to first kind of bring up that, that sense of boundaries of integrity of sense of, you know, this is where, you know, I'm, I'm protected here. And then we can, they can go forward to, to seeing the empathy or seeing the pain of that person. And sometimes we're just so battered ourselves or so overwhelmed that we don't have any reserves to do that. Mm. So it's kind of that the discernment is looking at the whole picture, like insert yourself. I think what we sometimes get caught in is that we, we think we should be more evolved than we actually are. You know, if I was really a good practitioner, I would not be upset by this. 
It's like, maybe you need to be upset. Maybe you need to really draw some lines and say, no, don't do that anymore. Maybe you need to get a restraining order. Maybe you need to do this or that, whatever it might be appropriate. You know, getting support from those who really care about you. And sometimes that's really what's needed at first. But you realize it's a process. That once that kind of happens, you start to become, you learn what it is to have your, your boundaries respected and honored. And when they're not respected, you can catch it much earlier. And you can much easier deal with it. But sometimes, you know, you're, what I'm asking, what I'm suggesting is like, okay, you have to kind of go back to, you know, decades and decades ago and learn how to kind of bring up those boundaries in all those different areas. Mm-hmm. So it's like you can see how the psychological work, the, the Dharma work, they kind of blend together. But I think it's ultimately we have to be very practical and we don't want to over, you know, think, okay, I should be more than I, anytime you say I should be, that's a good time to pause. I should be this way. I should be more kind and more, and I just am so mad at this person. Maybe that's, that's what needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Right, you're welcome. Thanks for your question. Good to see you again. Oops, I already switched her. Okay. These are great questions. You can see how, as you listen to them, they really help kind of round out this practice. Like, you know, talking about Buddha nature, you know, that's that's a great way of exploring it, talking about boundaries. You know, the practice really becomes alive, you know, when we, we engage. I know I... I'm naturally a kind of an introverted, shy person. So it was always, you know, a big deal to try to ask a question in front of a group of people. And it's like, oh, you know, there's all that energy going on. But it's also really helpful to practice. Okay, once I'm going to raise my hand and see, you know, I, I'm, I'm usually pretty nice to people who ask questions. <laughs> and you can find that it actually, it really deepens your own practice and that willingness sometimes What's needed in the practice is that willingness to speak when you normally would rather be quiet. All right. Anyone else like to ask or share anything? All right, Jean, good to see you. Uh, thank you, Tamara. It's uh, good to be here tonight. Uh, I just want to share that uh, you could not have known this, but uh, uh, there was um, a dukkha that showed up recently in my life, and uh, I was uh, so resistant that I think I felt like I was in an iron lung. And just hearing the talk tonight, has allowed me to just uh, let it go. So it's perfect timing for me. And I, uh, if I could reach through this screen, I'd give you a hug. Thank you for your words. It's awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Gene. Yeah, that's that's a really powerful example of of the refuge of of the teachings of the Dharma that. We can be, you know, caught in that. It's a, such a vivid description of being like an iron lung, just so contracted, no way to move. And then just hearing some teachings that, that resonate, it opens. Yeah. So thank you so thank much, you. Jane. All right. Anyone else? We just have a couple more minutes, maybe one more or so.
All right. Well, thank you all for your, your engagement. All right. So have a lovely evening. I look forward to hearing your engagement around this next week. And thank you for your Donna support also.